Hey everyone, this is Philip Jackson. I wanted to pause before the lessons in this series to note the significance of infertility and what we're trying to accomplish with these lessons. Um, infertility affects one in four couples in developing countries, and that's about 48 and a half million couples who experience infertility worldwide every year. According to Scientific American Magazine and the World Bank, the worldwide fertility rate has dropped by nearly 1% every year since 1960. Some scientists even believe that it is the greatest threat to the survival of the human race. Given its significance and the amount of people that are being affected by it, I believe that this is a subject that the church can't continue to ignore. Um, this is one of the most significant issues of our day, and we must do everything that we can to understand it biblically. This small series is intended to help couples who are struggling with these issues to understand what God's Word says, not just about conception and miscarriage, but more importantly, what God has to say to them directly in their relationship with Him as believers. This study is not meant to be a medical resource, but rather a theological lens for us to consider the great gift of children and the different roles that God has given us in His kingdom. In this lesson, we look at the testimony of Zachariah and Elizabeth as they process the miraculous birth of their son, John. As the story unfolds, we're going to see that sometimes God closes our mouths in order to teach us how to praise Him, and He uses the most unlikely people to bring us courage. Alright, if you have your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 1. This is the last, um, last, I guess, lesson in this series. We're going to go over some things next week, um, just some specific fertility issues and things like that. We're going to look at different uh, practices like IVF or embryo adoption, things like that, options that are on the table for infertility. We're going to look at that from a biblical standpoint. Um, but today we're going to look at our last couple, which is Zachariah and Elizabeth. And um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, if I can speak, are uh, the parents of John the Baptist. So we're going to cover a lot of scripture this morning. Um, I'm going to do my best to uh, to do it justice and We'll just see what the Lord can teach us. So we're going to start in verse 5. We're going read to the, read the next 20 verses, and then we're going to uh, look at a couple of the pieces of Scripture. So let's start in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias uh, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah uh, was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and, the, and, will, drink, and will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go, go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous as, uh, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18, Zechariah uh, said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have, sent, I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting uh, for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and, re- and remained mute. Uh, when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at this first thing. Uh, where we're going to start is we can see in this text that Zechariah and his wife are faithful people. These are godly people. Um, but something that I want you to, to be thinking about is that godly people have doubts too. Godly people are not always confident about their position or their future. And um, we have to remember that. Luke is, the, is the, obviously the author of this text, and he begins by setting the stage of how impossible it is uh, for what God's going to do through, uh, through Zechariah and Elizabeth by conceiving John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist is going to um, play a specific role in what God had, had planned for his people, uh, meaning us, right? He says that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Uh, one of the things that was common, we talked about this in previous lessons, is that in, in the ancient world, a, if a woman was barren or if a couple didn't have children, it was seen as a sign of, of ungodliness or of disgrace to them because God is the one who controls and opens it and closes the womb, right? And so you have this righteous couple who has done everything according to the law, have do, has done everything God has asked them to do, and yet they still have trouble conceiving a child. And um, the physician, Luke, notes that uh, despite their godliness, they had no child. Um, and he specifically points out that Elizabeth is the one who was infertile and that they were advanced in years. Um, here's something I want you to think about. Is that God doesn't withhold conception from couples because of their righteousness. We have a, uh, there, there's a very real lie from the enemy that somehow if, if you were more godly or if you gave God more or if maybe you, you aligned the tumblers in the safe just right, that God would unlock fertility for you and that's not true because um, we see all throughout scripture and all through the history of humanity that God allows unrighteous and righteous people to conceive he's the one he doesn't discriminate in fact um, Genesis 38 tells the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar um, who would go go on to be one of the ancestors of Jesus and the whole story is incredibly bizarre and gross and uh, the way that uh, that her sons are twin sons are conceived is what we would what we would call a um, a bad situation, and yet God chooses not to make lemon lemonade out of lemons. He chooses to redeem that that moment, and He uses those children to continue the promise that eventually gets us to Jesus. So this idea that somehow godliness has to be a prerequisite for conception, God is not punishing anyone through infertility, because of their lack of obedience. Um, I can't find that in the text anywhere in Scripture. It says that God opens and closes the womb. He is the one who's in charge of these things. And um, so when we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, we have, to be, um, we have to be circumspect 
about what all of Scripture says about this issue. So down in verses 8 and 9, talks about um, what he was actually doing in the temple. This is fascinating, okay? So at this point in history, there's about 20,000 priests. It's estimated, scholars believe there was probably about 20 to 25,000 20 25, priests within the entire nation of Israel at the time. That's a lot of pastors, right? And so what they would do is they would choose um, specific priests based on household to come serve in the temple at specific times. And the way that they would choose who would do what is they would cast lots. And so when it gets to the time for uh, Zachariah's family to serve in the temple, they could go through the process, okay? And uh, one of the commentators that I read um, describes this moment for Zechariah, okay? He says, to a godly man like Zacharias, uh, this was probably the biggest event of his life, a tremendous privilege, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Surely he wondered what it would be like to enter the holy place, a place that he had never been before in his life. This is a man who'd been faithful his whole, his whole life to God. And, and I'm sure that he had something special to say. Um, one of the things that would happen, so they would cast a lot, and there were three priests that would go into the holy place at this, what they would do. So one of them would... Um, one of them would clean, clean the altar. Another one would offer the sacrifice and take the blood into the holy place and sprinkle it on the altar. And then the third priest would offer the incense. That was the highest honor. Okay, the incense throughout Scripture um, is, is seen as a picture of the prayers of his people raising to the throne room of grace. Okay, so, so Zechariah has been given this highest honor to be able to offer prayers. So what happens is the, all three of the priests go into the holy place uh, the one who's cleaning the altar, he cleans it. And the other one uh, takes the blood from the sacrifice and he sprinkles flesh, fresh blood on the altar. And then those two priests leave. And the third priest, Zechariah, is left behind to offer the incense on top of the fresh coals. Okay? So this is where the story starts for him. So picture this in your mind. Here's a description of the holy place. So in front of Zechariah is the golden altar of incense. It was 18 inches square and three feet high. Um, on that small table lay burning coals with little wisps of smoke rising up, ready for the incense. Behind the gold altar was a huge, thick curtain, and behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where no man could enter except the high priest on the great day of atonement. So as he faced the golden altar of incense, to his right would have been the table of showbread, and to his left would have been the golden lampstand, which provided the only light for the room. So he is in this dark place with only a small candelabra offering a little bit of light. Look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. So as Zechariah is inside, the whole multitude, imagine the nation of Israel, uh, the, the temple grounds are full of people. They're on their knees, their hands are outstretched, and they're praying while he is doing this. And the symbolism of the incense rising is a picture of what's happening in the courtyard. There are some people who, um, some scholars say that, you know, Zechariah probably was in there, you know, he obviously was praying for the nation of Israel, that was his main job, but that maybe he was slipping in a few personal requests at the time. I don't think that that's true. I think that Zechariah, given the weight of what his responsibility was in that moment, I think that he was focused on his job. And so when we look at the dialogue between the angel Gabriel and Zechariah, it's important for us to think about that, Okay. So the angel interrupts him in his business, right? And, and uh, it says that he was troubled. The way that this would translate literally is he was freaked out. I mean, in, any, in, in every situation, 
for the most part, in Scripture. There's maybe one or two um, as an exception. Um, anytime someone has an encounter with an angel, the very first thing is the angel says, don't freak out. Right? He says, don't be afraid. You can imagine Zachariah in the middle of his regular life um, doing this thing. All of a sudden, he sees this holy being. And it's terrifying. I think that as I read that, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder. We tend to be very casual with how we see God. And we, we think of him as our buddy. But I wonder if this is the response of a human being to just see an angel, what it's going to be like for us to be in the presence of an almighty God. How terrifying that will be. And so Zechariah, he is ter- ter- terrified. It says that fear gripped him. It held him. It paralyzed him. He couldn't move or, move, move or breathe. In verses 13 and 17, it says that he was, uh, the angel seeing that he was clearly upset, he, to- he gave him a commandment to not be afraid. Um, so look at this next part. So it doesn't, Scripture doesn't tell us what he was praying for, but the, but the angel does make a specific point. In verses 13 through 17. So he says to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And then he goes on to talk about how he would um, do all of these things. Um, one of the things that is, uh, that's interesting here is that we're going to read later that, that uh, the son of Mary would be named Jesus, right? So get this. We've been talking about names, the meaning of names, right? This is kind of cool. That John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. And Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. How fitting is it that grace would precede salvation? That God would say, John is going to be a a testament to me giving grace, and Jesus is going to be me giving salvation. I thought that was interesting. Um, But notice what it says about John. It says that uh, in verse 14, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The thing about John that's going to be defining about his life is that his, his relationship with God. He is going to be so focused on godliness. He is going to be so focused on being sold out to what his purpose is that that is going to be his reputation. And, it's, and as a result, people will find joy and gladness in who he is as a person. Um, and then he goes on to talk about this. So he says that he was filled with the Spirit. This is something I think we need to understand. We typically, when we think of being filled with the Spirit, we think of a, like a pitcher of water being full, right? And then you pour it out, and it's refilled. But the, the biblical definition of being filled with the Spirit is actually more like the sail of a boat. Okay? So it's not something that is filled and then poured out. This is something that is, that is driven, that, that causes momentum, that moves things. Um, and just like that picture, a good sailor knows not only how to catch the wind, but also how to capture it efficiently in order to move the vessel at the appropriate speed, power, and direction. So when we think about him being a man filled with the Holy Spirit, this doesn't just mean that he is going to be um, exciting. It means that he is going to be driven in godly things. So when you think about your life, when, when uh, God's Word says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that we are going to be full and contained. It means that we're going to be pressed in a direction. So that's one of the defining things about, about John, is that he is going to be this kind of a man. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the forerunner for what God would prepare in the Messiah. 
And he would do two specific things. So when it says that he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, this is a quote from the last verse of the Old Testament. And this is significant because this quote right here, remember this, is, this happens before anything else happens in the New Testament, before Mary gets appeared to, any of that other stuff. This is the first revelation from God in 400 years. His statement to Zechariah is exactly where God left off in Malachi chapter 4. So the very last words that, that God gives the prophet Malachi, that this person that was going to come to be a forerunner for the Messiah is going to be um, filled with the Holy Spirit and he's going to turn the hearts of the, of the fathers back to their children. So God essentially is picking up exactly where he left off. The second thing is that he is going to, uh, he's going to turn the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. He would be a prophet that would bring fo- the focus of the sinful world towards the resolution with God. That's the thing, is that this guy was going to be significant. Okay, but now think about Zechariah. Everything that Scripture tells us about him is that he is a godly man, right? And yet, in this story right here, he doesn't believe. It's almost like Zechariah prayed for a son, prayed for a child, Many years before, and as soon as his wife hit menopause, as soon as he got older, he realized this is never going to happen. I'm just, just going to stop praying about it. And yet, the angel doesn't address any of the prayers that he prayed in that moment for the people of Israel. The angel is addressing a prayer that he prayed years before. Look at how he responds. Okay, so he says, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years, um, meaning that their physical limitations can't be overcome. But look how the angel responds. He says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Notice this, that the archangel doesn't mince his words. He is the messenger from the Most High. He doesn't need credentials to validate who he is. He says, hold on a second. I just gave you a direct word from God, and you're telling me that you don't believe me? Another way to say this is, the Lord God sent me here personally to give you good news, and you respond with no faith or praise. I can see Gabriel getting a little emotional, and not in a great way. And so he, so he uh, strikes him mute. Zechariah had been faithful in all of his prayers for a child, and he had turned his heart away, but he had turned his heart away from worship, and he had begun to, begin to just get into the, the regular routine of God's stuff. He forgot that God is a God that can do all things. And so God's plan for Zechariah and Elizabeth came at the exact proper time. It says that all of this will be fulfilled at the proper time. Have you ever noticed that God is never late and God is never early? God is exactly when he intends to be. So we have to remember that when we're reading this, in our minds we think, oh, well, no, I have my, my clock is ticking, so I have to hit these benchmarks at this point, right, the trajectory. If I don't hit these things, then I'm a failure. But when it comes to God's word, his timing is perfect. All of Zechariah's plans, they have to take place exactly when he intended them to. But here's the thing about our plans and God's plans. Is that we typically call our plans uh, what are simply just our ignorant expectations. Scripture actually uh, says that we don't have any control over our future. Only God does. In fact, to say that we have control when we know that it is not the case is called wicked and demonic in James chapter 4. 
And so that means that God's plans are in fact the only plans. And that uh, the fleshly response to this is that eventually we will grow calloused towards the things of God and we will become pouty. And it leads to skepticism about His righteousness. That's the cost of thinking that we're in control. Is we begin to look at God in, from an entitled standpoint and we begin to think, well, He owes me this because of these reasons. My plan is this and it should work out this way. And if it doesn't, somehow something's wrong with Him, not with me. But on the other side of that, the book of Romans tells us that the people of God should take comfort and confidence that their pure Heavenly Father has orchestrated their lives perfectly for their benefit. When we are children of God, we need to walk in confidence in what He has provided for us already, not for the things that we perceive that we're missing. Remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 1, chapter 7, 1, verse 7. Look at these next few verses. Verses uh, 21 through 23. The people are waiting for Zechariah to come out, right? And so they're, they're sitting there wondering, well, maybe something's not right. One of the things that they would do, so on the other side of the holy place was the Holy of Holies, and when the priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, he would wear a special ephod which had bell, bells and the tassels around his ankles. And he would they would tie a rope around one ankle. The reason why they did that was because they wanted to be able to listen to see if he was still moving around. Because if God struck him dead, they wanted to be able to know that. And the rope was tied around his ankle so that if God did strike him dead, they could pull him out without going into the Holy of Holies. So this is a very real thing. God had killed priests in the past for, for being unholy, for not being serious about their job. And so I can't help but wonder that the people were sitting there praying and like, well, wait a second, he's been in there for a long time. Is he, you think he's dead? So he comes out, and there's this collective sigh of relief. It says that, um, that he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And it must have been profound because he was trying to sign to them, was trying to give them clues about what was going on, and he couldn't speak. And um, he just remained speechless. So after they return home, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they begin to get back in their life, right? Um, and sure enough, she becomes pregnant. Now, something you've got to think about here is that it says that she goes into hiding for five months. So this is a woman who is postmenopausal, so she, so she doesn't have a, a cycle. She has no period. And so there's no way for her to know that she was pregnant until that baby moves or she begins to show signs physically that she's growing. So for five months, typically a baby starts moving um, between 16 and 25 weeks. Okay, And it's the same thing for showing, uh, showing in her belly, right? So she wouldn't have had any way to know that she was pregnant. So use your sanctified imagination. She goes home. Her husband finally struggles to get this message across to her. You are going to have a baby. I'm sorry. And so she hides for five months. Uncertain if this is really going to happen. And I can't, I can't help but wonder, whenever they came together as a couple, if that was the thought every single time. Is this going to be the time we make a baby? Is this going to be the time? Is this going to be the time? But she hides. There's two things that we can, that we can, two ways we can think about this. It says that she went away and she, uh, she says that the Lord looked on her with favor. So one way we can look at this is that she went away in solitude to pray and to, to thank God for his, for his prophecy that she would bear a child. But remember, righteous people 
can have doubts too. The other way that we can look at this is that Elizabeth came home and she has this, this prophecy that she's going to bear a son and they're going to name him John. And then the humanity takes over. Wait a minute. I'm an old woman. What are people going to say whenever I start showing? What are people? Well, I don't know if I can explain to people about a miscarriage. I don't know if I can explain to people what's going on. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm ready for these conversations. I don't know if I'm ready to to be this public with what God has promised in me. All the insecurities start start kicking in. Later on in verse thirty nine, we see that she didn't actually leave town. She just basically held herself up in her house. Because when Mary goes to see her, she's still in, the, in a city. She's still at her home. So this is a woman who hides behind the curtains for five months. And she anxiously waits for evidence that she is pregnant. So look at these next few verses. Look at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of, Abra- of David, uh, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, is, she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For, you, uh, for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren <coughs> excuse me, um, is now in her sixth month. For, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, a couple things. We're not going to spend a lot of time with Mary, but there's something I want you to see. So there's a difference between Mary's response and Zachariah's response. Him and Elizabeth, they've been praying for a child for all these years, and when God finally answers their prayer, he responds in disbelief. Right? But for Mary, when she's asked, or when she's told that she's going to be pregnant, she's going to bear a child, she asks an innocent question. How is this possible? See, um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they at least had the means to conceive a child because you had a husband and a wife. But Mary has never been with a man before, and so she asks an innocent question. She says, how is this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. But Gabriel responds to Mary's question differently than he does to Zachariah's. He begins to explain to her who Jesus is going to be. And then he continues and he gives her a, a clue to how she can confirm whether or not this is going to be real. He says that her relative, Elizabeth, has conceived a son in her old age. Her testimony and the life of her son would pave the way for the Messiah. John began his ministry before he was even born. Think about that. If his job was to pave the way for the Messiah, that meant that everything about him was going to point people to Jesus. He hasn't even made an appearance yet. He hasn't even moved. His mother doesn't even know that he exists yet. And yet his life is bearing witness to Jesus. So Gabriel says, go see her. And you'll be able to figure this out. God uses the faithfulness of one person to, exp- uh, to drive and to reinforce uh, faithfulness in others. He strengthens us in our uncertainty. But you know what's interesting is that 
Mary goes to, uh, she hears this news about Elizabeth, and um, she's excited. But Elizabeth is still hiding. Look at these next couple of verses. Verse 39. Now at this time, Mary rose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of, Ju- of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of, the Lord, of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. Okay, a couple things here. There's no mention of, of Elizabeth returning from seclusion from outside the city, so we know that that's not the case. So she was boarded up in her house. It says that Mary immediately set out and went to the hurry to the hill country. This is about 80 to 100 miles. So you can imagine this little teenage girl from Tulsa saying, I've got to get to Oklahoma City to see my relative to confirm that this is true. So she leaves by herself to go find Elizabeth. Talk about determination. She knew what was going to happen because she believed what the angel had said. So whenever she walks into the house, Elizabeth hears her greeting, and it says that the, that the baby jumped for joy. This is the first testimony of John the Baptist proclaiming who Jesus would be. Now remember, he hasn't even been born yet, and he's already proclaiming who he is, his purpose, right? It says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit to know what this meant. One thing to consider here is that Elizabeth didn't have, didn't have the uncertainty of a vision herself. Think about it. Elizabeth didn't see an angel. Zachariah and Mary did. Elizabeth is just kind of in the dark, existing, hoping that this is going to come to fruition, and yet she has no confirmation until this moment. And so Mary comes and she, she speaks, and all of a sudden, Elizabeth knows exactly what's going on. Because of Zachariah's mutinous, she wouldn't have been able to process these things over these last five months. She would, be, uh, she would be thinking and asking questions. Remember, she's in seclusion, so she's not you know, calling her mom and asking for her advice. She's not calling a sister asking for her help. She is alone for five months. And this is the first confirmation that she actually, she actually does believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. This moment where Mary sees Elizabeth is filled with significance because look at Elizabeth's response. It says that she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Once she realized what was happening, she couldn't contain her excitement. Okay, She praises Mary uh, as the most blessed woman in history, and she couldn't believe that the mother of the Messiah would be interested in her. And so she says, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Here's, here's what this means. The fact that John is jumping in her womb, excited that, that Mary is there because Jesus is there also, it confirms for Mary that she's pregnant. God uses Elizabeth to confirm to Mary that she actually is carrying the Messiah. Because the way that you read this text, Mary turned out and she went immediately to the city. She's wondering, okay, what this angel told me, is this, going to be, is this really true? And sure enough, her cousin, Elizabeth, confirms what God had said. 
Consider it this way. That God gave Mary Elizabeth to comfort her, and God also gave Mary to her cousin to acknowledge um, what he said he was going to do. She says that, she was, that Mary was blessed because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Think about these two women. One of them is unmarried. She is at risk of being stoned because of her perceived um, indiscretions. Okay? This is Mary, the teenager. She could be killed at any moment. And then you have Elizabeth, this old godly woman who is hiding in fear because she's afraid of what other people might think of her. And yet God uses the one, the young woman, who, doesn't, who, who knows the danger that she's in, and yet she is so passionate about what God has done in her life, she is so sold out, that God uses the young woman to give the older woman strength and courage. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of godly community strengthening each other in uncertainty. What does Satan try to do for us whenever we are going through difficulties? He tries to get us, get us to separate ourselves from godly community, from accountability, from having a godly perspective. And the thing that, that always suffers is worship. Think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. From that moment in the holy place until this point, they have not been able to worship. Zechariah's response should have been praise and worship and thanksgiving to God for what he is going to do as he bears him a son. And yet, Zechariah can't do that, and so God takes his voice to teach him to praise. And so now he's going to be born. <coughs> Look at these next few verses, and starting in verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had dis- displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But, the mother an- but his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there was no one among your relatives who was called by that name. And they made signs, signs to his father as to what he wanted to call him. And he asked for, the ta- for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear, on all, fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being take, talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord is certainly with him. Okay, a couple of things here. So presumably, Mary's presence gave Elizabeth some reassurance. Okay, so she begins to be a little bit more um, public with her, um, with her situation, right? And so when her son is born, it's not a surprise for the community. They know she's pregnant, right? So the midwives come over. They begin to start going through the process of birth. And um, what's translated here as the Lord had displayed his great mercy, it literally means that God had used Elizabeth to magnify his mercy. So consider this. That her testimony acted as a magnifying glass to show the world the goodness of God. So as you're, uh, think about in this type of a situation, right? Highly unlikely that she's going to get pregnant. Highly unlikely that she's going to bear a healthy child and a son at that. The response of the community is that it puts a magnifying glass not on 
not on Elizabeth like she thought, but a magnifying glass on the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the richness of His mercies. That's the, that's, that's the goal of our lives is to, is to walk in faithfulness and as we worship, as we go through hard things, that His grace is magnified. That His goodness is magnified. That essentially, God causes us as a light in the darkness to shine brightly so that people can have hope. What Elizabeth was afraid of, the enemy had turned this potential for glorifying God into fear and crippling anxiety. And yet, because of Mary and her encouragement, Elizabeth now is a beacon of hope for her community. So God's goodness is magnified. Everyone around Elizabeth rejoiced with her over the birth of her son, and they saw him as a display of God's genuine and tender love. They, it says that they were rejoicing with her, but some of them seemed to think that this was not just going to be an ordinary boy because they say, okay, something's up with this. So on the eighth day, according to the Mosaic law, on the eighth day a boy is circumcised as a, as a sign of the covenant. This is when they would give them their official name. So... Um, at this time in history, people were, were beginning to name uh, children, not necessarily because of the season of their life, that still happened in some cases, but um, they were naming them for their family members, or significant people, you know, heroes, that kind of thing. And so they, uh, the midwives assumed that they were going to name the son, Zachariah, after, the, after his father, right? And so Elizabeth protests, and um, she says, no, he needs to be named John. I love Zachariah's response. Because they come to him, so they, they start giving Zachariah signs, it's like he's deaf. Dude's not deaf, he just can't speak, right? They're te- te- you're treating him like he's an idiot, and he's not. He's like, oh my gosh. So he gets his, his tablet. And his response, I love this. Um, he says, uh, in verse 63, and he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. Plain and dry, simple fact. I'm not giving you justifications, his name is John. I'm thinking about Zechariah. Because for nine months, this guy has not been able to utter a word. His job is to lead people to God. His job is to teach the Scripture. His job is to encourage others. His job is to, is to give wisdom to others. And yet, whenever God appears to him through this angel, he doesn't worship. He's not thankful. He has no thanksgiving, no gratitude. And so God takes from him his purpose. He's not able to teach. He's not able to encourage. He's not able to read or to speak out loud. At this time in history, that's what they would do. The, the rabbis would read God's word out loud. They wouldn't read it silently. God took Zechariah's purpose for nine months. Why? I believe it's to teach him how to worship again. The first thing that he could do when his tongue was freed was to speak praises about God. This is what he wanted to do so much. All of the words that he was careless with before, all of the the expectations that he was careless with before, his plans that he had made before, all of these things pale in comparison. I see it now with my eyes. The son has been born. His name is John, and I will praise and I will worship the God of all the universe because he has been faithful. This is who he is now. That Zechariah boldly speaks the name, the name of God and his, his newly freed tongue can do nothing else but to praise. What a beautiful picture that worship and obedience are matters of the heart and not just the lips. 
that his worship had to had to come from an authentic authentic place deep within himself and it wasn't just an expression of, of eloquent words it was something that was that was passionately committed to this was a moment of restoration for this old priest and it bears it bears in mind a lesson for us that the most powerful tool that God has for making disciples is a heart that is tuned to worship When we worship today, whether that is in joy and in celebration of what God has done through mothers or whether that is through the difficulty and the the pain of loss of children, we need to remember that worship is the thing that defines us as God's people. I hugged my mom about 30 minutes ago and she is not having a great day because she knows what it's like to bury a child. We have to remember on, uh, today of all days that today is a day of worship. It's a day of gratitude and thanksgiving. As a word about John's naming, uh, as the word about, about John being named um, something different than his father's name as it begins to spread around the community, it says that people began to fear. It says fear came on all those who lived around them and it started to spread through all of these foothills of Judea. Yet again we see this newly born boy causing ripples and turning people's uh, eyes and hearts towards God, they begin to say, who is this little boy? He hasn't even opened his mouth to utter a word yet, and yet he's pointing people to miraculous provision. One of the things that I love is Zachariah's prophecy about his boy. These last several verses are um, Zachariah's response to, uh, to what God had done. Look at this, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, uh, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember the ho- his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We don't have time to go through this, this uh, prophecy, but Zechariah's response, he's had nine months to think about it. Have you ever, when you were a kid, did your mom ever send you to your room to think about what you had done? Right? This is a picture of Zechariah that God said, okay, I'm going to give you nine months to think about what I'm doing here. This guy had nine months to read God's word, to pray to himself. He wasn't able to share anything that he had learned over nine months. He experiences Mary, this teenage family member, show up at his doorstep and see his wife's response. He's watching all this play out and he can't take part in any of it. He's just an observer. And so he's overwhelmed whenever he prophesies about who his son would be. That salvation has come and that his son will be the one that was spoken of by the prophet Malachi to make way, make the way straight for the kingdom of heaven is, is a here. 
And notice what they do where they raise his son, where they raise their son. Verse 80. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John grows up in the wilderness. He grows up away from everything. In my sanctified imagination, I think of Zechariah and Elizabeth raising him in the wilderness, teaching him from the time he was little God's word. Talk about dedication to disciple making. I'm going to take my kid out in the boondocks and we're going to raise him in godliness. Talk about prepping. These people were on their own. Here's my encouragement. I know that we went through a lot today. Zachariah and Elizabeth, I think just like with, with Hannah and Elkanah that we looked at last week, I think Zechariah and Elizabeth can teach us a few things about who God is. Remember, the first question that we ask when we read God's word is not what does this mean to me, it is what does this teach me about God. There's a couple of things that stand out to me in this, in this story. The first <clears throat> is that God loves his children immensely. That these things that we look at as, um, as necessary for our life, if God knows what's best for us, he knows what is necessary. And he knows when those necessary things should happen. And that's a hard thing to accept when they don't happen in the ways that we've always expected them to. But it's important for us to remember that he would never give us something at the expense of our ability to worship him. He won't do that. Because if we lose sight of who he is, if we lose the ability to authentically worship and we become obsessed with the things that we feel entitled to, that's bad for us. That's destructive for us. The other thing that this, that this has taught me is that God is not... Um, He's not ignorant of how painful this, these things are for us. He's not. Think about it. He knows what it's like to lose a son. He knows what it's like to, um, to fight for hope. He knows what it's like to struggle and to see those that you love contend and to suffer. And yet, he works all things together for our good. Not that he is up there trying to mend things and make things work, having happy little accidents. He is being intentional about every single moment. Every single moment. God loves Zechariah just as much whenever he shut his mouth as he did when he turned his, lung, his tongue loose. We have to remember that the, the, the defining thing about us is our ability to worship. Everything that we need, everything that, we, that, that, that is going to give us purpose and satisfaction is going to be God. There is nothing more than that. It is not God plus children. It's not God plus a spouse. It's not God plus a job. It's not God plus a savings account or God plus anything. You can't, there's no blank after that. It's just Him. And I know that this may sound like just dry encouragement. But the thing that is the most profound, I think, in all of this study has been that God sees us. When it says, I, I left this out of my notes, but at the first, whenever it says that, uh, that God saw her, saw, saw Elizabeth in her struggle, 
it means that he was intimately in tune, uh, in tune with her heart and her struggle. This wasn't just him watching from a distance. He was in the action with her. And her hurt was his hurt. Last thing I want to tell you is that um, if you are one of the things that, that God has really been putting on my heart lately is, is Philippians chapter 4. That he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Something that we have started to do in our, our reach ministry is we pray for each other after we're done with service. And um, we've, added the, we, we've realized that it's easy for us to bring up the things that we're struggling with. But something that we need to work on our muscle memory with are finding things to be thankful for in those struggles. And um, so I would challenge you, as you have conversations with each other this week, as you do life together at Life Group or wherever, and struggles come up, I want you to ask that question. What about this situation can cause you to praise the Lord? What are you thankful for? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come on.